Hello, Fried fans, and welcome to Season 3 of Fried, the Burnout Podcast. I'm your host, Kate Donovan, and my mission with Fried is to hashtag end burnout culture. On this pod, we end burnout culture by sharing stories of people who have been through it all and lived to tell the tale, sharing expert tips from the best of the best in the burnout and stress management fields, and sharing hashtag straight from Kate episodes full of my own expertise plus actionable steps to help you end your own burnout cycle starting today. If you're feeling burnt out right now and need more personalized guidance, I'm here for you. In every episode, you'll find a link to book a free breakthrough burnout call. You can find it easily by heading to bit.ly forward slash call Kate or finding the link in the show notes. This free call helps us decide if one-on-one coaching is perfect for you. If it is, we'll get started. If it isn't, I might suggest one of my immediately available online courses, my book, The Bounce Back Ability Factor, or some sessions with a colleague who's better suited to exactly what you need right now. Also, if you happen to be in New York City, I'd love to see you as a patient. I'm a licensed acupuncturist with over 13 years of international experience, and right now my office is located in Midtown Manhattan. I focus on, you guessed it, burnout. I help your body build up a natural stress resilience to fight off all those pesky symptoms that come alongside burnout. You can find all the deets on that at katedonovanacupuncture.com. Hello, Fried fans. Today is a very special episode, and I'm not going to clue you in exactly just yet. We're going to let it unfold as the episode unfolds, but today we are speaking with Elizabeth Lott, who is a Gulf Coast native but adopted New Orleans as her home in 2013. She's a writer, a nonprofit director, a dreamer, a curator of sacred space and conversations that matter, and the first female solo pastor of a Baptist congregation in the state of Louisiana. She has been married to Nathan Lott for almost 20 years, and they have two children together, a middle school daughter and a high school son. She's happiest when she has her hands in some soil and can usually be found working on a slow DIY restoration of her mid-century modern home. Elizabeth, I've been dying to have this conversation with you for months, and people will find out why soon enough. But I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you for making the time. Thank you for chatting with me. It's always such a joy for me to spend time with you. So I'm so grateful that you're here. Thank you, Kate. I feel the same way. I've been really excited about this and have missed seeing your face. So this is just a treat to get to play with you for a little while today. Oh, it's so fun. All right. So we start every episode, as you well know, on Fried the Burnout podcast with your burnout story. So we'll start with that and we'll go from there. Um, Well, as you mentioned, I I tend to write things. I am a writer by nature. So I've been working on my burnout story in words um, on paper. So I want to share something that I've written with you and then um, it'll, uh, I'm pretty sure, open up some questions for us to explore. Uh, So I'm I'm in New Orleans and that's important to know as, as I get started. There are events that change time. Defining moments when everything in life comes to be understood as before that moment and after that moment. In New Orleans, the biggest in most anyone's lifetime has to be Katrina. No need to mention a hurricane, no need to mention levees failing or the Corps of Engineers being culpable. There was the time before Katrina and there is the time after Katrina, period. Well, in my personal life, there is before the fall and after the fall. On February 8th, 2018, I fell, literally. Growing up on the Gulf Coast of Alabama and then raising my family in New Orleans, carnival is part of the rhythm of my year. I crave it and look forward to it. Christmas, New Year's, Twelfth Night, Mardi Gras, Lent. That's how the rhythm goes. We lived in Virginia decade and I would throw parties with king cake shipped in from home or drive by friends' houses with the kids hanging out the windows of the car when the saints go marching in or Mardi Gras mambo blaring on the radio. We'd throw beads, doubloons, and moon pies out the windows. To move to New Orleans in 2013 was moving to a heart home, a town where my spirit could catch up with my mind and settle back down into my body. All that to say, I love a parade. This carnival in particular had been a wet one. Lots of parades were washed out or changed because of the forecast, 
And New Orleans is a city that has no choice but to take any and all water issues seriously. But Thursday, February 8th, that final turn toward Fat Tuesday was a gorgeous day in between a lot of nasty ones. I mean, it was a perfect day with a just-as-it-should-be blue sky, the kind of day that people started skipping out of work early and making weekend but on a Thursday parade kind of plans because the forecast looked so bad for the weekend ahead. In that number, I grabbed a ladder before the kids got out of school, met up with friends on St. Charles Avenue and First Street and helped to claim our spot. I love these moments because everything happens so fast, so organically. Someone grabs a cooler of beer and some bottles of wine while another brings the Popeyes. Wigs, glitter, costumes, children, joy, bands, light up throws and pure delight. It was a magical, perfect night, not too hot, not too cold breeze blowing just enough, every stranger a friend. The crowd's thick but not utterly on top of one another. By, time, by the time the muses began to roll, the third parade of the night, it was finally dark, and they debuted a new float, the Goddessy, with golden paper lanterns floating down the avenue. We made signs for three different friends who were neutral ground side riders and had shoes for us. That's what the muses are known for. Personalized, glittery, fantastic shoes made by hand every year. About half a dozen floats into what was immediately the best parade of the 2018 season, I left our spot to find a restroom. While I was away, I got a text that the first friend with a shoe was coming. Naturally, this was very important information. Swept completely up in the moment and fueled by a glass or two of that expansive celebratory night, I began to run, illogically, like a young woman in the best shape of her life who jumps hurdles for fun and not at all like a 40-year-old mom carrying 20 extra pounds who couldn't make it a quarter mile without gasping for breath. I ran down three flights of stairs chasing after a used shoe from Goodwill covered in glitter and fake feathers. In the dark of the night, I jumped from the curb to the street, running all the way, and didn't see that I was stepping off where a storm drain was ankled down to the canals and culverts beneath the streets, the one that keep New Orleans from returning to a swamp at any moment. I honestly don't remember what happened next. I heard a man saying, get up, come on, we'll get you up. No one saw, no one has to know, you'll be all right. I don't remember hitting the ground. I don't remember moving to right myself. I remember hearing his voice as I lay on the pavement. Then I vaguely remember a stranger in the dark pulling me up and the taste of blood in my mouth. The most magical, beautiful night ended with me face planting on St. Charles Avenue in front of a gorgeous cathedral, knocking myself out, breaking my front teeth, and briefly rearranging my jaw. I went into emergency response mode as soon as I fully came to. I sent my husband back to the street to tend to our children and act like everything was okay. Through the help of some very dear friends and colleagues, I made appointments that night for the next morning with a husband-wife duo to repair my teeth with temporary fake ones and set me straight with a mouthful of clear braces. I drove myself to the dentist the next morning. I took a selfie lying in the chair waiting for my broken teeth to be repaired with artificial bonding before the Mrs. Dr. Gottsagen sent me to her husband for braces. The Mr. Dr. Gottsagen was so generous, filled with grace, as he assured me this happens every year. Every year, he said again for emphasis. I believed him. I wanted to believe I was not the only middle-aged idiot who had ever tumbled her way through the crew of muses. In the photo I took that morning, I was so focused on my broken teeth, the swollen bruise on my chin, and the pavement scrapes along my cheekbones that I didn't even notice my vacant eyes. I also failed to observe the fact that it was more than a bit ridiculous I was driving myself to the dentist and orthodontist after a tremendous fall. I didn't want to be a burden. 
And I knew I had already messed up the rest of Mardi Gras for our family. We would miss parades because of me. It would cost a lot of money to fix me up again because of my silly, foolish sprint for a sparkly shoe. But to be fair, it was a platform heel with Kelly Green aqua and purple glitter topped with a bedazzled peacock feather. My muse saved it for me and gave it to me after the fall. It is a prized possession. This is when people laugh and say, only in New Orleans. Well, it was Saturday before I realized something else was not quite right with me. I obviously didn't want to go out to parades just yet, but I honestly can't remember what I did in the 48 hours after the fall, besides the immediate teeth repair. At some point on Saturday, I recognized I had more than a stiff neck and facial contusions. In addition to waves of shame and guilt, I felt something different, something unfamiliar. I was being sweet, gooey, slow, and drippy with my sweetness, a little bit like a tipsy sorority girl who suddenly loves everyone and announces over and over again, I love you, you're my best friend, except I was completely sober and nursing crash wounds. Sweetness is often an admired quality in a Southern lady, but I'm not that kind of Southern lady. I'm a Julia Sugarbaker type. I can be described in a whole lot of ways, but sweet usually isn't one of them. I remember thinking, what's wrong with me? I must be concussed. Well, spoiler alert, I was. I wouldn't get to a doctor to confirm that for another five days, however, because the entire city was closed for the most wonderful time of the year. Oh, and here's another twist. I'm a pastor. The kind who gets up and preaches and makes meaning from ancient stories at a church, an esteemed cerebral progressive congregation on the same historic avenue where I fell. That particular weekend was a big one. It was the 25th anniversary of our jazz worship service with the renowned Dr. Michael White and his original Liberty Jazz Band. It's always on the final Sunday of Carnival. We had promoted the heck out of this event. Dr. White and I appeared on local television to talk about how special that day was. There was no way I was going to miss it but I somehow knew I could not trust my words. In lieu of a sermon, I recruited people to tell stories with some kind of theme. I was an MC that day instead of the speaker. I don't remember what the theme was. I don't remember what stories they told. That Sunday morning, I slathered makeup on my cuts and bruises, did my very best to look like a healthy, normal person, and I went to work to welcome several hundred folks who I call my Mardi Gras congregation. I remember almost nothing. In 2019, I sat down one day to prepare my mileage statement for our tax return, and I looked back through February, March, April, even into May of 2018, and I could not remember entire blocks of time. Meetings about important subjects? Nothing. Driving to so many appointments and lunches and who knows what, alone, always alone. I officiated a wedding on March 10th of some dear, lovely friends, and there are big holes in what should be memories of a beautiful weekend. I never stopped working, I never stopped pushing. I drove myself to more appointments with the orthodontist and dentist. Drove myself to the doctor where I failed memory tests to confirm I had a concussion. These are the kind of tests in which they want you to remember things like person, woman, man, camera, TV. I drove myself to the hospital for a CAT scan to confirm there was no bleeding on my brain. By May, the braces came off and the dentist confirmed that my teeth were dead. Then I drove myself to the endodontist for a preliminary visit before double root canals. I at least had the presence of mind to take a lift to the actual appointment for the root canals and opted wisely for the nitrous as soon as I heard the whirring sound of the special drill they would be using. I do remember thinking nitrous was a good move. This would really be freaking you out right now. And I listened to Mark Marin talk, had some lucid dreams about past lives, and then I took a lift home. It's not that I have no friends. (laughs) 
or that I'm a single woman living alone in a new town where I don't speak the language. I've been living in New Orleans for almost five years at that point and married to Nathan for a full 17 as all of this was going on. I did not want to ask for help. I did not want to disrupt my husband's schedule. I did not want to be a burden. So I martyred myself like so many women before me and pushed through. And then I resented everyone for not intuiting what I really needed and reaching out to help me, even though I said I needed nothing. This would prove to be a deadly personality trait that finally landed me in a place where I could no longer push through. The exhaustion at last, overwhelmingly, too great. But it took a couple more years to get there. So for everybody listening, that's not the first time that I've heard that story. I know that story already. And the combination of Elizabeth's abilities, lecture abilities and experience, and the strength of that story gave me chills all over again. I've read it before and I've heard it before. She's told me the story. I've read this story. And listening to it right now, I felt it all over again. Me too. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. I felt it all over again. And so one of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you specifically is because you inhabit this space of being a female pastor in a progressive Baptist church. And you guide people and you're good at it. <laughs> well, thanks you know? for that. And you're good at it. And it's obvious that you're good at it. Anybody can look up your YouTubes and look and, and listen, just listening to you tell that story. It's obvious that you're good at it. And through all of that and through becoming a pastor and through everything that you know about community, and leaning on people for help. When you were going through the depths, you were convinced that alone was the way. Yeah. And have remained convinced even, even beyond that, that moment. Um, I think there's something about the kind of job I have in particular. It's not the only job where perfectionists show up. Um, but there's a, there's a real symbolic role to being a pastor. And I'm aware of that and aware of the unhealthy tendencies that can bring up, that it can really feed ego. It can really feed codependence. It can really feed um, perfectionism of presenting yourself as I'm the finished product. This is what you're all supposed to be striving for. <sighs> which um, is a really dangerous way for me to live. I think it's dangerous for everybody. But uh, for me in particular, that feeds all of my neuroses. That feeds all of my shadows. That feeds the parts of me that I'm wanting to release. And it's only been, I think, in the past year or so, especially in conversation with you, that I've been able to really articulate that. And at the same time, I'm the kind of person who usually tells the truth about her life. Um, so there are just layers of complexity and secrets. And um, I, I think there was something particularly shameful about that fall that I, um, I would always laugh before everybody else could laugh. I would always make the joke before anybody else could make the joke because um, it was funny. And I, I remember running into people that year who would say, oh, you're the pastor who fell at Muses. Um, and I don't like to be the joke and I don't like to be made fun of. So one of the ways that I really compensated for that was I will be so strong and so excellent. Um, so then in the, it was 2018. So yeah, in that same year, we, I, I then started to apply for a huge grant that we became the first congregation in Louisiana to receive around historic preservation. Um, 
and got it. <laughs> and then somehow Hillary Clinton was on her tour with Chelsea. They had written this book together and a bookstore reached out to me and said, the book's about gutsy women and you're a gutsy woman. We want this event to be held at your congregation and, and for you to help uh, host it. So there were big things that happened that I just continued to kind of lean into the big things and yeah, and not asking for help and not reaching out and not fostering the very community that I preach about and encourage people toward. Yeah. And this, this sense of neuroses about being in the, the, the guider position. So in most of the time when I'm talking about this, because I inhabit the world of holistic healers, I'm using the word healer, but guider might be a better word. Anyone who guides another, which covers a lot of professions when you really think about it. And when I was in that, I mean, I'm still in that position, of course, but when I was in that position in Poland and I was really burning out, I wouldn't admit to how tired I was because according to myself, I shouldn't feel that tired because I know the rules and the exercises and the food and the things for me to not feel that tired. So I can't admit to it happening because if I do, that means that I'm failing at the things that I'm teaching other people to do. And if I'm failing at teaching the other people, then then I'm wrong. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and, and yes. And I would also add that in my very bizarre profession, there is all this magical spiritual language that gets dusted mm. on top of it where we talk about calling. Yeah. You're called into this work. Well, who do we think is calling? God, spirit, the energy of the universe, like the very pulsing heartbeat of what animates all things. Talk about some pressure on that too. Like rather than, you know, you're, you're skilled and gifted for this and we as a community are inviting you to come. But there's, there's this, even beyond that, there's this magical thinking that goes on top of it. And so what happens when this thing that supposedly I'm called to do by the creative energy of the universe, it's killing me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what do you do then? Well, and that was exactly my question, right? And one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about this week, actually, is that when you are a perfectionist, and you have a calling to do something. I do believe that that becoming an acupuncturist was a calling for me. When you have a calling to do something and you answer it, you think that's the only call you're going to get. And you're like, okay, I got the call. I'm responding to the call. That means it's over. And what we fail to realize as human beings having human experiences within a spiritual world is that the calling doesn't stop, right? Your phone doesn't stop ringing, but we get so, or I did, and you can tell me if this is true for you, I got so caught up in answering that one phone call that I kind of like took the phone off the ringer and was like, I can't do another call. Like I, th- this, was, this was a lot and I already fulfilled yeah. this. So let me be, please. And then when I was dissatisfied with it, when it became too much and too overwhelming and I, I didn't realize that the call could continue, that the thing that I thought was the end didn't have to be the end. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's also, a, so there's a, there's a necessary element to understanding vocation. Uh, there's a necessary element of imagination that you have mm-hmm. to hold space for and foster and curate. Um, and when you are burned out, there's no imagination. It's gone. Yeah. Um, and so I, I'm, I am more mindful now than I ever have been about these tendencies in me. I'm able to look back and see patterns across time. And I think about when my children were very little, firstborn, I had the luxury of being able to take some time off luxury, or we just charged it on credit cards. I'm not sure which, <laughs> that luxury privilege of being home for a while. And in that time, I would preach periodically, typically in little churches where they'd never had a woman preach before and write some things and did some vlogging, what, you know, whatever was happening 14 years ago. But I came to understand this idea of vocational identity that was apart from a job. Mm. And it was a really great season of clarity for me. So it's interesting when I did move into a more traditional job for what my vocational identity might be, I also reverted to a lot of, well, here, here are the traditional expectations, not mm-hmm. taking that 
imagination and curiosity with me of, well, how am I shaped to be in the world? And then how would I take this into this work? Um, and so I find that same roadblock sometimes now of what, what would this identity look like in some other work that it's not, it is not the work itself that is my identity. And I think when I get those things uh, inverted, then that's when burnout becomes really likely. Yeah. So, right. So, so basically what you're saying is I have this calling and it's leading me towards this thing. And this thing has these rules that I'm assuming that, that might be, may or may not be true, right? Some of the rules we make up, some of the rules are, are cultural biases, whatever it happens to be. But so there's these rules that now I have to follow because of this vocation, instead of saying, I'm called to do this thing, how do I make it mine? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and you're so good about asking questions about external and internal expectations, pressures, whatever. And, and you know, it, did somebody actually say this to you or, right. or is this in your head? And I, for the most part, I can say that the pressures I feel are in my head, that I'm comparing myself to especially baby boomer white male pastors who have done this job for decades Well, and it's also not your fault that that's what's in your head because that's the propaganda and the rhetoric and the picture and the representation. Sure. Yeah. 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 Good point. Right. That's what's shown. So it, it, that, that's one of those things that when I'm having people like tease out the internal external stuff, that's one of those things that's both. So you've internalized it, but you internalized it because that's what you see. Right. So this is one of those things that gets a little bit, that gets a little bit tricky. And this is, this is when, um, for people that have not yet been my clients, um, when we're teasing out the internal and external stuff, it's really important to know which parts belong to you, but give back the parts that don't give back those internal bits because you can't be responsible for all of them. And when you are somebody who is in charge of a thing, whether you are you're an, an entrepreneur like so many of my clients are, or whether you're the pastor, the head pastor of a church, and you are in charge of making sure that things run well, that you have enough money coming in, that your congregation stays as a community, that people that attendance stays up, etc. It's it's a, it's an entrepreneurship in and of itself. When you are in the role of being in charge, you absorb all these ideas of what being in charge means also on top of the vocation, right? And some of those things are internal and some of those things are external, but the expectations that we create for ourselves in those scenarios are massive. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I I said moments ago that I feel like there's something about my job that that is really set up for codependency to you. Yes. And if you're already bringing from your family of origin and your, your past experience, exactly. those, those tendencies, and you have, you have the wiring to, to tap into that, um, then there's also a real need to overcome toxic external pressure yes. to be able to identify it and say, you like to hold that boundary of I'm saying no. And I know that this is going to disappoint you. And you may even say you don't like me anymore. You may even leave my organization and go somewhere else and tell other people how horrible I am. And I'm not going to let that into my heart. Yeah. Which is harder today than it's ever been. Because that doesn't just happen within your 100-person congregation. That happens on Yelp and Google Review (laughs) and Amazon, right? So I see this happening a ton in the acupuncture community that people are like, this patient is being totally nuts and the expectations are out of control. And I have explained myself from here to Tuesday, but I don't want to put up this boundary because she's going to leave me a one-star review on Google. Yeah. So disappointing someone in your own personal space and having that be sort of like a kind of like a secret that no one really finds out about that. You're like, well, I disappointed this person, but I can move on from this to being put into a position where at some point you're going to have to defend yourself. Maybe because people are going to attack you online. This is something we've never had to do before. I find that the attacks for me are mostly by email. I mean, my, so, you know, I'm sure that there are 
Google reviews of the church out there somewhere that I just haven't gone looking for. Yeah, don't. I know some, some <laughs> wild men um, who are known usually for protesting stuff on Bourbon Street here. They carry like the huge sin. They carry those signs. Like one Sunday, I guess they were bored. There was nothing happening in the French Quarter and they found out about me. And so I don't, I don't want to give them any hits. So I won't say where it is, but somewhere online is a thing of them finding me and like talking about me and having a picture of me. It was pretty creepy. You know, saying that I, I was, uh, oh, that my church was a eunuch church because I had, ca- that I had castrated and, and emasculated all the men. Um, so, uh, so there are those things that I can just be like, okay, well, I mean, I hope that you're not going to actually come after me and my family, but otherwise I can laugh at you. But it's the emails that come in about like, you disappointed me. Yeah. I am in embarrassed that people heard what you said in our church on Sunday, or, um, I really needed you and you weren't there for me. Yeah. Cause that's what I'm supposed to do. Right. Just bleed and bleed and bleed so that others can live. And I won't do it. I won't do it anymore. And it, and, and part of what breaks my heart in I'm sort of in a dying profession. I mean, I don't know if you know, lots of people aren't going to church anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I've heard, I've heard a couple rumors. Yeah. Like, you know, there's this sort of a thing um, going on in our, our little world. I can't think of a single clergy person who I'm really personally good friends with who doesn't feel fried most of the time. Yeah. Who doesn't feel like if that job offer came in today and I could walk, I would walk out now. I would leave everything in my office. Well, the, there's a problem. There's more than a problem of just church attendance. And like, we've built this structure that has its own issues of white supremacy and like patriarchy, you know, let's set those things aside. If you have an entire industry of your top leaders saying, I would leave now, I would leave now, then something has been set up that is uh, not just unsustainable, but it's breaking people. And, uh, and this goes back to the internal external conversation, right? right? Like we can work on the internal stuff as much as we can work on the internal stuff, but we don't change the external stuff until everybody works on the internal stuff and then stops accepting the external stuff. But we don't change that on an individual level, which makes it, which is why it's so difficult, which is why the people that are pushing to change the medical profession now, because doctors and nurses, especially after this year. Yeah. Oh my good Lord. They are done. They're done. We have more people leaving the medical field right now than ever before because they can't keep up anymore because they can't work 36 hours on a COVID unit. Yeah. Without a break. You know, it's just, it's wild. So, but in order to break down these systems, we need enough people to be saying out loud. Mm -hmm. I would take a job if you offered it to me right now because this is not sustainable. Yeah. We need enough people to be saying that and people are not saying it because then does it mean you're going against your calling? Right. Right. I'm a doctor. I'm a nurse. I took an oath to heal and yeah. Yeah. Um, But if you're having to sit in the stairwell on your way to your car and weep for half an hour before you've got the energy to walk down the stairs then something's not sustainable, I've, I've heard people in the medical um, field talk about that this year. Yeah. Um, And I, I, you know, I think too, that there's this chronic disconnect in our culture in the U S between mind, body, spirit. Yeah. And to have a job like mine, that's supposed to be real heavy on spirit that, you know, there's an atrophy that happens at the other parts. And so I would Mm. think, you know, you've got mind and body in the medical field and maybe the spirit piece gets missing out. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, to, to live a more integrated life is, is really challenging in our culture without changing a lot of um, the internal expectations of, of what it means to be human. No big deal. <laughs> yeah, about, about changing the internal expectations of needing to meet the external expectations. Yeah. Right, of being okay, like you said before, of being okay with, with disappointing people and systems. It makes a lot of people uncomfortable in the acupuncture profession that I'm not doing acupuncture full-time anymore. Mm. They're like, oh, so you're coaching people now? Oh, what, acupuncture wasn't enough for you? <laughs> like, well, to be honest, no. 
acupuncture got really easy for me and I started getting bored. Yeah. Sorry. It wasn't enough. No, I wanted to do something more. And I love doing one-on-one coaching, but is that going to be enough for me full-time? No. I want 3,000 people in the room with me when I talk about this stuff. I want to reach millions of people. I want to be able to change burnout culture within my lifetime. In order to change burnout culture, I need to talk to a lot of people. So one of the reasons this podcast exists. When I get to the point, you know, we, we recently passed 30,000 downloads. By the time this comes out, hopefully it will be at 50. I want those. I want that to be happening. Not because I think I'm correct necessarily. Because the fixes might be different than the ones that I'm imagining. Mm-hmm. And the problems might be different than the ones that I'm seeing. But we need to start the conversation somewhere. Because if we don't, we all stay stuck in this. And what I see, what I've seen over the past few years of studying burnout is that healers are burnt out, caregivers are burnt out, teachers are burnt out, pastors are burnt out, doctors and nurses are burnt out. We can now cover all the professions. So if all the professions are burnt out, then the external system, the culture that we're doing those professions in is not matching the time we're in anymore. And we all need an upgrade. And one of the things that I think is happening with COVID over this whole, the, you know, the whole past year that we've had of just everything being thrown up in the air and saying, we don't know where the dominoes are going to fall, is saying, how do we change this into something we want more than what we had? Yeah. Yeah. So when you were talking, I, I, um, started thinking about a line in a Muriel Ruckheiser poem. What would happen if one woman told the truth about her life, the world would break open. Isn't that great? Yes. I felt that in my whole body, head to toe, full body. I have goosebumps head to toe. Can you read it one more time? What, what would happen if one woman told the truth about her life, the whole world would break open. I want to be that kind of truth teller of saying, not just telling the truth about my own life, but hey, this is broken. Hey, what we're doing is not working. Hey, we're going we're gonna to shine a light on this right now. Um, and we're going to stop and we're going to tell the truth. And, I, and so, uh, so at this point, we're nearing what? 250,000 people have died from COVID. And again, by the time this airs, I'm sure we'll cross yeah, three. Top that, yeah. Uh, I pray it's not a whole lot more than that, but it's, um, it's a disaster. It's terrifying. And also because of my privilege, my spouse and I have the kinds of jobs that we've been able to just move home and be at home and have our kids doing school at home and be here and still draw salaries. And I recognize that's part of what's broken in our system. Um, But so for me coming from this place of all this privilege, I have had glimpses this year of the life I really want to be living Mm. where I can write for a couple of hours in the morning and then go out and work in the yard. I've done so much gardening over the past six months. Planting your new life. It's, it's amazing. I mean, it's, and then I go in and I can have a meeting about, you know, the criminal legal system and how we're going to work to make the system more restorative and less punitive. And then I can make lunch and sit with my kids. And so there's just been this flow and an ability to be in flow that doesn't happen when we're keeping the old hours and doing like, why do I need to? And and I'm not saying that I feel this external pressure from people in in my congregation, but, but the, the cultural pressure of why do I need to be in this office at this desk from, Ninety-five. Yeah. Why? Why? Yeah. yeah. And I think recognizing that privilege is important, but I also think recognizing that privilege and then using it is even more important. Oh, absolutely. 100%. So what you're saying now is you're using that extra time and energy that's granted to you because of the privilege that you have. This is the same for me, that because of this privilege that we have, we can be the visionaries for what can come next. I'm not saying that everybody has the ability to do that right now. And I'm not saying that everybody has to. We only need a certain number of people to, to reach a, a, you know, a mass movement that will change things. Not everybody has to do it. Those of us with privilege have to use that privilege in order to change the system for the people that do not have the power over it. Absolutely. And, and the same to be said about um, only when you're in a position of rest and health and wholeness 
can you have the imagination and the space for curiosity to begin to dream about what what a different world could be like? Because um, when you're, as you you know, you say fried and crispy on the edges, right? That, that you know, when you're like living like that, there, I can attest. There, there's there's no imagination. There's no curiosity. there's no creativity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I want to talk about something that we've sort of skated over a couple of times, and that um, I, I heard you say, and that was true in my life as well. That if our jobs are to be truth tellers, and it's not just about our lives, of course, but it is largely about our lives. And often as healers, pastors, givers, guiders, the stories that we tell about our lives are the ones that we've already packaged up mm-hmm, with mm-hmm. a nice bow oh, yeah. that don't really feel vulnerable anymore because we've created them so that they are already a lesson for others. A hundred percent. Oh yes, very much so. Right. So one of my things this year has been, how can I tell, I I don't want to tell the story before it's at least a little bit figured out because I don't think that that's guiding anyone. That's not helpful for me to just be like, I'm in the muck, deal with it. You know? Right. So I've got to be at least one step ahead, but how can I start telling those stories when I'm only one step ahead instead of 20? Right. So it's telling the, so if one woman told the truth, we go back to that quote, right? If one woman told the truth, what would happen? And so the, the, the thing that's coming up for me is how do we, how do we allow ourselves this space to tell more of the truth without mm-hmm. wrapping it in a, a beautifully bedazzled, glittered shoe? Yeah. 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 Um, I'm thinking the preaching advice I got from wonderful, uh, wonderful women. And that's part of it too. I feel this pressure to like honor these wonderful, wonderful women who came before me and really were in a man's world and really were functioning in the way that cis white men had told them to function in the 20th century. So the advice that I was given about preaching was preach from your scars, not from your wounds. Right. So that you would not become emotional in the pulpit because as soon as you became emotional, then people would feel sorry for you and start feeling pity for you and no longer listen to what you're saying. Right. And I've heard the same thing, but are we taking it too far? A hundred percent. So yeah, that's what I, that's where I was going with that is um, now, but I've seen a generational difference that there are times that I have told a moment, told a story from a very vulnerable place and gotten that choking in my throat and needed to take a minute. And I do find that there are some, oh, I'm going to tread carefully here, but I think there are some generational differences again from, this is not what we're accustomed to of, oh, wow, you're feeling something. I don't, when you feel something and I start to feel something and I'm not sure. I want to go there. What I like about that or but I don't know any other way to be. I really, I really don't. And I know that the times that I have talked about what it's like to live with generalized anxiety disorder and really be honest about that and, and share a homily that is more questions than it is answers. I appreciate the really honest conversation that can happen around that. And I think I'm more interested right now in if there are five or 10 people who want to grab onto that and really do something with it and chew on it and have conversation, then that's moving us towards something. I think I'd rather do that than let me tell this really polished, nice story so I can have a larger audience saying, Oh, wasn't that a really nice polished polished story? story." Right. Like, Oh, she, she did so well. She talks real good. (laughs) She talks real good. And she learned that lesson. (laughs) Yeah. I, um, and so that's when it comes to, Maybe I still really struggle with reaching out for for help and support and community and those things, but um, but telling the truth about my life, I think, invites accompaniment. That's a hard word to say, you know. It invites people to accompany me and and is is making that extending that same invitation to others. So I want to walk this with you. I don't know what it is. Yeah, but let's do it. Yeah, yeah. This is something that has come up often in my. Um, workshops in corporations this year because it took me a long time to break into that world but as soon as 
people were like, oh, you're the burnout girl. And that's the only thing we need to be talking about right now. I started to get a lot more, yeah, you know, HR people reaching out to me rather than me reaching out to them. Wow. And I love doing these talks, but one of the biggest challenges is breaking down. So this is, this comes into my goal to change burnout culture is breaking down the leadership's wall around sharing that shit is difficult for them sometimes. Yeah. So that their employees feel safe enough to say, Hey, listen, I'm struggling with something too. Right. If we don't feel like we can say that we're struggling, then we don't ask for help. Yeah. And if the leadership doesn't let us know that we can say that we're struggling, then we don't ask for help. And the leadership can't come in and say, you guys, I can't function today. Figure it all out yourselves. But the leadership can come in and say, I am feeling terribly anxious. Mm -hmm. Does anybody have a meditation that they like, a guided meditation that they like on YouTube that they could share with me? Because that gives people an opportunity to say, well, when I'm anxious, this is what I do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and even just naming it. Um, how many times over the past year have I said, it's been a week, (laughs) (laughs) how many weeks have we had where it's like, I, I don't know how there could be that many major personal and national and international life events, um, to, uh, to, and I, I have the luxury of doing this in my own work, but to be able to light a candle and say, we're just going to sit for a minute. Like, let's just sit and let our breath catch up with our bodies and our minds until all of these things are in sync and not feeling a a need to fill every single space with words. Yeah. Which is hard for talkers like us. (laughs) It is. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, and I think about, it's so silly, but one of my go-to movies is the devil wears Prada. (laughs) And the, the thing that, Andy, the girl who's working, you know, in this fashion world that really is not for her, but she's trying to, she's pushing ahead and she's saying, I'm good. I'm determined I'm going to make it in this world that I have no business being in. The the thing that people keep saying to her is, you know, there are a thousand girls who would kill for your job. There are a thousand girls who would kill for your job. And so that just fuels her even more of, I'm not going to quit. And I, and I, I know I feel that pressure at times if there are so few women who have actually gotten to go into the role that I am able to fill every week that I, I feel that pressure of, well, there are all these women who didn't get hired. There are all these women who sacrificed themselves to make sure I got here. And, um, you know, I don't want to be totally gendered about it. Talking about gender is really complicated and nuanced and it's not binary. And we know that. Um, and also when, when you are, a female or female presenting person, whatever language. Oh, no, I've already messed it up. I've not done it right. But when you are female in a, in a male space, I, I, there's just a pressure to, to be excellent and not be weak. And I don't, I don't want that anymore either. Yeah. Um, and so I think that that's part of what happens from telling the truth about our lives. Because, I, I mean, my, my spouse benefits from that. Tell me the truth about your life, too. Oh, you were struggling at work? That, so the year that I fell and face planted and breaking my teeth open, he was really struggling with a project at work that had him completely underwater. Yeah. I didn't know. Right. We weren't even telling each other about our biggest struggles. If you can't even tell each other <laughs> in what supposedly is this primary friendship. Ah. Yeah, that's a tough one. And that's one that... I feel really fortunate in, I mean, don't get me wrong. We've had our, our bumps in the road. Like everybody we've been together for almost 15 years. I mean, there's, there's going to be bumps in the road along the way, but I really feel very fortunate that we have learned with each other over time to ask each other better questions in order to create space for better answers. So instead of saying, what do you think about what's happening next? In our house, the question is, what is your body saying? How are you feeling about this? Right? And we both ask this question now after so much time, which I am so grateful for. Right now we're buying a house and it is a lot. And the past few weeks have been so stressful. 
because as much as I have worked on my boundaries over the years, I still don't want people to dislike me. And we have had to put down some very like tough boundaries with the builder. It's a brand new home and things like the floors were crooked and they didn't want to fix it. And we had to really, really push back to get what we're paying for. And that makes me incredibly uncomfortable. Yeah. Incredibly uncomfortable. And having having someone who sits down next to me at the end of the day and says, how are you feeling about that today? What's happening in your body? Are you breathing okay? Means that I feel supported before asking for help because there's, I know that there will be space for me to discuss this, but this was not always our relationship. Let's be honest. You know, this happened largely after I had one of the most transformative conversations in my entire life with my best friend after I created a lot of pain in her life. And we didn't speak for a couple of weeks. She told me, Hey, listen, you need to back up for a couple of weeks because you just messed up and I need to decide what I want to do about it. Yeah. And she came back and we had the most amazing conversation where both of us stopped and said, okay, this is what I did wrong. Okay, this is what I did wrong. And then we were able to say, well, and this is what I also think you did wrong. And this is what I need you to atone for with me. And after having that conversation was the first time that I realized that adults could actually talk to each other like that. Yeah. This is what I, this is another thing that I think breaks down burnout culture that I want to create space for those difficult conversations where Ah. we can have them and not attack each other. And that's what I think you're really talented at as well. That's, and I know that about you from personal spaces, you know, we can have them and still uh, appreciate and love each other afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. Or that we can also acknowledge when things have served their place for a season and we bless it and we move on. Yeah. And not frantically, anxiously clinging to fix it and make it right. When it's not anymore. Right. Which is the same thing. We go back, we, with it, we're going full circle in this conversation a couple of times, right? So this is the same thing about saying, this was my calling and this was the correct move for me then. Yeah, I was just thinking about um, my, my dad. Let's, let's say he's 74. I, I'm starting to lose the but, um, mid mid seventies guy and chose a degree in undergraduate that he knew would work with his skills and set him on a trajectory. And he did that work until he retired. And he's the kind of person who's not really ever retiring. He will continue to piddle in the financial markets and all of that stuff forever. And for, for a generation, that was kind of more than that. I mean, that, you, you did your work and you did your job and then you retired. And I think to move into this more expansive space of we're going to evolve and have lots of different jobs. I've been in this role now for seven years. It's the longest I've been in any one place and <laughs> any one job somewhere. So of course I'm not who I am now seven years later as I was seven years ago, same as in a marriage of we're coming up on 21 years well, my goodness, I've been a whole bunch of different people over those 21 years. We have to have space in our professional lives and in our personal lives and in our friendships for that kind of evolution and that kind of growth. And, um, you know, I hope I'm modeling it for my children. I hope I'm leaving space for them to know that they get to explore in that. And it's not the sort of thing that I can fix on my own or solve on my own or get it all done today. But um, yeah, I'm with you. I want a different, more sustainable way of us being as a people together. And using our gifts, even if the original name of the calling that we had has shifted. Yeah. Right. To me, I, when I started my college career, I was going to be an MD. So I Mm. shifted out of that once, but then once I chose Chinese medicine, I thought I can't change anymore because that would make me someone who's fickle and not someone who's serious enough and someone who's constantly changing her mind. And, but I, I kind of like change. If you look at my life, I mean, I like, I like it. It's difficult. And I complain during it for sure, but I'm inspired by and grow within change. 
And I can't wait to see what I'm going to be doing in five years because I already know now that it's not going to be the same thing that I'm doing now. It'll probably be in a similar, it'll be in a healer thing. Sure, but it'll evolve. Yeah. And I don't know. I can't even imagine what it will be. I do imagine what it'll be, of course. I mean, so I can't, I can't imagine. I just don't know if I'm right. (laughs) Yeah. So I... I have said that I've been doing all this gardening and planting and the most recent project that I've taken on is digging up all of these lilies. We have these amazing lilies that are in a a big border, um, but had just gotten completely packed in and I wanted to do something different with them. So I've started three weekends now of digging up the lilies and then you dig them up and there's this giant bulb, but then these other bulbs around it, you break apart. I am covered in lilies now. I'm covered in them. I've given them to strangers that I met on the door. I'm taking some to some friends this afternoon and dropping them on their porch. I, it's it's been this really fun, amazing thing that like we're still going to have these lilies, and now they're going to be in all these other places too. Or the same with a a tree that's inside my house that it's been in this great container for the longest time, but I needed just yesterday to buy a bigger container to put this tree in. The tree's still there. We still have the tree. It still is the tree, but it's gotten so big and has so much life to it that it needs to be held by some different kind of space now. Mm, Um, And so we don't question that. There's not a grief of like, oh, I'm really going to miss that old container. (laughs) The lilies will still bloom. They may not be in the same place. They may not be quite what they were, but there's not a grief of oh gosh, last year's flower is gone and now there's a new flower this year. You know, it's just an amazing, miraculous thing that happens. Uh, So what if we were able to be more generous with ourselves that way? And I'm saying that to myself. um, I don't know that I'll be a pastor forever. And already in saying that, I'm like, oh, people from my congregation are going to hear this and they're going to get anxious. And But when when I think, okay, so I'm 43 now. Where am I at 53? Where am I at 63? There's a lot about this this job that doesn't fit me. And that's no judgment to that. It just, it's not the way I'm growing. I'm going to need another container at some point. And so how do we uh, acknowledge that and give space for that without And how do we get out of the old container so that somebody else that does align with it can jump in? Mm, that's great. This is also really important to me. I feel like when we don't leave those containers that we don't fit in anymore, we're blocking other people from getting in there that need to be in there, that should be in there, that will feel good in there. When I first got to Poland, there was not a lot of acupuncture for gynecology. And I taught it a bunch. And there were, there were some. I'm not saying there was none. It just wasn't a lot. And I worked in a Western medicine, medical facility as the first acupuncturist in a fertility center in the entire country. So it shifted a lot for the country. Now, I don't fit that mold anymore. I will treat people for fertility in my acupuncture practice, but it's not the thing that I focus on. And I don't do it every day because it's not the thing that I'm built for anymore. But now... I can name at least 15 people in Poland that are doing that full time. So because I left that container, I left space for other people to grow. Don't soak up all the resources that don't belong to you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, so good. Right, because we we forget that it's not just about our own progression. This is about other people's progression too. Absolutely, I'm so yeah. I have not thought of it that way at all. And so to think about like, but the container will miss me. Yeah, no, it won't. It needs me. (laughs) (laughs) The container needs you as much as you need it. Yeah, yeah. And then when it has served its purpose. Yeah, if you're pushing against the edges of it and it's about to crack, it wants you in a new container so that the right thing can be there. Right? So when we hold ourselves back, we're holding ourselves back and we're holding back the people that are coming up behind us. Mm. And there are people coming up behind us. We're at that age now. We weren't for a long time. And we are now. We're at that age where there are people coming up behind us and they need the space that we're exiting. Yeah. I think that's important. We have already gone over an hour and I could go on and on. I know. But I think that this conversation has been so powerful and it didn't take the normal maybe shape of Fried the Burnout podcast. And I'm actually really grateful for that because I think we needed a moment of just expansion. And 
as the podcast grows, the podcast also shifts. So when I did the first season, it was only interviews. And then the second season turned into interviews and straight from Kate episodes. And the third season, when I recorded the intro for this season, I was very clear on this podcast exists to help this message grow. Yes, I want to help you as people, but also it's important for me to use this as a platform. And it's important for you to know that I can help you as a coach and that I can have you as a patient in my acupuncture practice in the city. And it's important to get that information out there. In the beginning, it was just like, ah, let's talk about it. And the purpose of it shifts and changes. And it's the only reason I have seasons in the podcast so that I have an opportunity to stop and say, what needs to happen next? What am I growing into? Yeah. You know? What a great question. What am I growing into? So I'm grateful that this conversation went this way because maybe this guides us to the next. So thank you for living in expansion with me. Oh, thank you, Kate. So good. This was great. Thanks for the invitation. And uh, it's always good to sit and talk with you. Always, always. always. I'm so grateful to have you in my life. I'm so grateful for your wisdom and your knowledge and your speaking abilities. I could just listen to you for hours. You could talk about anything. Well, I'm sure that that would get old at some point, but thank you for that. I'm I'm just such a big fan. Well, thanks. I think the world of you and your work is so important. I hope hope everybody in every household comes to know your name because what you're doing really, really matters. And that the more people that know, the more we can break down this culture that is breaking us down. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you again for being here. Great. What an honor. What a treat. Take care of yourself. Enjoy your new house. Thank you. All right, everybody. That wraps up another episode of Fried the Burnout Podcast. I'm not going to really say a lot at the end of this episode because I think that there is an energetic feeling of expansion that we should leave you with. I want that to be the last thing that you feel here. So I'm not going to add anything today. That's going to be it. What am I growing into next? That's all. See you next time.